is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The FDA will soon give approval for kids 12 to 15 to get the Pfizer vaccine. The whole thing might be a little complicated, though, because of timing. The shot has to be given with all the other back-to-school shots over the summer. They can't all be done at once, so that's going to complicate efforts. Moderna has some good news if you are worried about the variant. One of the many downsides of the pandemic, political instability. We'll look into that. The pandemic is impacting the mental health of your pets. We'll explain how exactly. And Broadway, get ready for a big comeback. We'll see what's ahead in the world of live show business. We begin with younger teens and the vaccine. Dr. Kristen Oliver is a pediatrician and professor of preventative medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. Do- doctor, is timing really important with COVID vaccines? Yes. No, two, two, two important points about that. So one is, yep, there are groups of vaccines that children get you know, generally when they're 11 to 12, they're going to get their Tdap tetanus and pertussis booster. They're going to get the HPV vaccine and they're going to get a meningococcal vaccine. And then again, when they're 16, 17, they'll get another booster of the meningococcal vaccine um, and, 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 and another meningococcal vaccine. And so uh, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of children miss and adolescents miss those doses that they normally would have gotten last year during the COVID surge. People weren't going to the doctor's offices, people were staying home, um, and some of them didn't get them just because they didn't need them for school. And so we need two things. One, we need to make up all of those missed doses that happened in the last year. And then there is, as you said, a potential complicating factor around when you can give a COVID vaccine in, in the timing of other vaccines. And I can go into that. If you'd like. Yeah. How far apart? Because they say, you know, at least a couple of weeks, right, uh, right. before or after your COVID vaccine. And as we know, that can take, you know, a few weeks in between your two doses of that. So the timeline just gets kind of longer and longer. Exactly. So right now, the recommendation is not to have any other vaccine within two weeks of a dose of a COVID vaccine. So that's two weeks before and two weeks after. Um, And as you just said, so and there's three weeks for the Pfizer vaccine, for instance, in between your first and second dose. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, we're talking about almost (laughs) seven to nine weeks when you can't get another vaccine. Well, that gets kind of complicated, doesn't it? Especially for kids who presumably have to go with their parent to get the vaccines. It means that their parent has to kind of go with them how many times to get vaccinated? Well, they would have to go for the, twice for the COVID vaccine doses and then, you know, once for their, all the other vaccines. Three, three times total. Three times total. What I would say that is um, get, get those other vaccines now. Um, now is the time to really catch up on any missed doses over the last year and be prepared for the doses that you would normally get over the summer to go ahead and get them and get them now and get those done and out of the way. OK, and then get COVID in a few weeks or whenever they give the approval. So get exactly. your two weeks go over with now and then you'll be ready whenever you can get your COVID shot. Right, because there could be some time between the um, the approval and then the recommendation, and then when the shots are actually available um, and when you can actually get them. So I would I would say don't wait to catch up on the other vaccines; those are um, as important. Um, and and so you know there were big drops last year in all of these vaccines, as I mentioned. So for the uh, Tdap vaccine, they were down by twenty percent. Meningococcal vaccines down by sixteen percent. HPV vaccines, which prevents cancers caused by HPV, also down by twenty percent. So we need to make up that gap um, is, as well. Is this timing issue just 
for the COVID vaccines, is this something that, I mean, you can get a whole bunch of other vaccines. I know I've traveled sometimes where you have to get vaccines and you get them all at once. What is it about the COVID vaccines that the timing, not of the doses of the COVID vaccines per se, but the timing of getting other ones seems to be so critical? Essentially, that there isn't any we there isn't any data on giving the vaccine the COVID vaccines at the same time as another vaccine, right? And so there's just no information on that. And and these are new platforms, so there's a, you know, there's a question about what would it could it potentially affect the effectiveness of a COVID vaccine, right? Um, and we just, we still don't have an answer to that. Eventually, I expect that we'll have studies um, looking at that and, and administering the COVID vaccines at the same time as other vaccines. Um, also, in adults with a flu vaccine, right? You kind of want to know if you can give those two together. Eventually, we'll have those answers we don't right now. All right. Dr. Kristen Oliver, pediatrician, professor of preventative medicine, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Doctor, thanks. The latest findings from Moderna show its vaccine booster looks good when it comes to stopping the troublesome COVID variants. Does that mean we all need to get that third shot in the near future? Dr. Roberts Kim Farley, professor of epidemiology and community health sciences, UCLA. So, doctor, nobody's really sure if we need boosters, right? Fortunately, that is correct. We are seeing good immune responses uh, to some of these variants, even with the current vaccines. But I think manufacturers are always wanting to, again, tweak the vaccine to make sure it's as effective as it can be, and especially to be on the lookout for vaccine variants, uh, sorry, virus variants that may need additional changes in the vaccine. And then I guess there's a question of how long our vaccines are going to last, right? Is it six months? Is it nine months? Is it a year? Because if coronavirus is still going around, which we expect it to be, whatever variants it is, you might need an extra shot to get you the next leg. Well, that's a very good point that uh, there's two aspects of booster shots, if you will. One is to, again, boost the immunity that may be waning so that you get longer ranged immunity. And so that's an important aspect. And the second is the idea of a booster shot that may be a tweak on what is the uh, currently circulating variants. And somewhat like we do with uh, influenza vaccines each year. I mean, is it possible? I know we've had some people on the show from time to time who have, you know, raised the the possibility that these vaccines may be a lot longer lasting than people think, you know, beyond a year, maybe even, you know, two. Is that possible or is the evidence so far in the limited amount of time these vaccines have been around starting to point in the direction that the efficacy wanes? Yeah, I think the jury is really out on that. We just have to continue to follow people out that have had the vaccine and see how their antibodies hold up and how the protection also holds up. It's possible, for example, that although your antibody level drops, your body is still, in a sense, anamnestic, which means that memory is there so that if you ever got exposed to the virus, you'd quickly mount a response back. So we'll just have to see how it actually behaves in real life. What do we expect when it comes to side effects for boosters? I'm a Pfizer guy, so I got my two. Maybe it's been a year. I need my third. Am I going to go through chills or fevers again? I think probably the result that you had after your second dose uh, of the vaccine is probably very indicative of what you're going to experience uh, for a booster dose. And typically, for some people, that could be some soreness in the arm, some fatigue, 
um, and some achiness, but usually some uh, uh, Tylenol will take care of that. If Man, you have that I, I've, I got a fever. What did, we, you, did you get a fever? I had nothing with the second. I got it really? all with the first. No, I got it. See, yeah. I got it with the second. I, I did it, it in reverse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had a fever <laughs> yeah. and, and Yeah, it's and, interesting. You know, the individual variation that occurs. So, and some uh, people get nothing. Like, always people are scared nothing. about yeah. side effects. I'm like, it's a roll of the dice, guys. You don't know. Yeah. The, the, and fortunately, the, the, none of the side effects are severe. Uh, that's the beauty of these vaccines. The the question, though, of, of people who are, as it is, reluctant to get the, the first dose of the vaccine, let alone a booster, uh, that's going to be a difficult sales pitch, will it not? Because it's, like I said, I mean, it's hard to get some people in just to get the first, and if it's one of the ones that require two, Two shots. In fact, the, the studies are so far showing a lot of people have forgotten to even get or haven't gotten the second dose. Getting a booster, is, it seems to me, is going to be a very difficult sales pitch. Well, I think it's possible that we have to make sure that we are uh, informing people that this is a very likely possibility. And I think that the fact that uh, you've brought this up on your program helps your listenership to understand that, hey, look, this may be in the cards and that, you know, this is probably not much different than what you're used to for influenza if we need to go that way. So we can use the same, uh, if you will, uh, messaging and, or sales pitch, as you called it, uh, for this vaccine as well as we do for influenza. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, professor of epidemiology, community health sciences, UCLA. The pandemic is leading to political instability in some parts of the world. There's a lot of uncertainty in Brazil, which has been hit hard recently. And an outbreak in Colombia has led to several straight days of protests against the government. Brett Bruin is a former U.S. diplomat. Uh, Brett, this is a connected world, so it seems like whatever problems uh, these countries are going to have are going to end up affecting us here. It is. And unfortunately, to date, the United States has not been very engaged in the global response. We've been holding back vaccines uh, to first, obviously, vaccinate Americans, but also in terms of just the aid and the assistance that's been available, it's been pretty meager stuff. And this does have an impact eventually on us politically and medically. Uh, and by that, I mean that, you know, the more the coronavirus spreads in places like Brazil and Colombia uh, and Peru, the more opportunity there will be for mutations, variants that may very well at someday spread in the U.S. But it's also a potential immigration problem, is it not? That that as uh, there's political upheaval and poverty and unemployment in these countries, the instability we just mentioned in Colombia, for example, that's going to drive more people to head toward the U.S. for a better life, Right. Oh, without question. And let's not forget that many of these countries, especially in Central America, uh, were already in a tough spot when it came to governance issues, when uh, it involved uh, the economy. So the fact that you're now grappling with this pandemic, uh, far fewer resources, far less confidence uh, from the public in what the government can do is only going to create more instability and more opportunity for uh, armed groups, for other political, nefarious political elements to enter the mix and really uh, to create uh, some challenging conditions that, as you said, are going to force more migrants north. And let's not forget uh, that comes with a whole lot of challenges, resource challenges for our folks on the border.
Yeah, I mean, for the economic side, you think we had multiple stimulus packages here, and there were arguments about whether, you know, the latest ones were too delayed and all that. But some of these countries, if they've had, you know, one or maybe a couple, or they've done try, they've tried to do something to help people, others are just already at the limit of what they could have done at the beginning of this. So there's not a lot of help for all these people who are now out of work and are going to continue to be out of work. Well, and let's not forget the other side of the economic argument, which is it will become more difficult for American exporters to sell goods if we've got countries whose economies are suffering, uh, even from the supply side. And we're seeing, you know, at the grocery store, we're seeing out at uh, the um, uh, the construction uh, sites, the challenge of getting supplies because of the disruptions from COVID, that's only going to get worse. We saw, of course, in this country on January 6th that democracy was and perhaps still is very much uh, fragile at the moment and and uh, outcome of our sort of grand uh, couple century experiment is not quite clear. Um, in South and Central America, we are also seeing a tilt very much to the right, very much to authoritarian governments. What does that say about the future of this hemisphere? Oh, democracy is very much in danger. And many of these leaders, uh, the likes of uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, as well as obviously Maduro in Venezuela, are taking a, a page out of Trump's playbook. And so the tactics, uh, the uh, rhetoric that he has used is now getting translated into Portuguese or into Spanish. And it, it unfortunately, in those cases, you don't have the same kind of checks and balances, the institutional power. So I, I think the ramifications of, of that kind of populist politics uh, could be quite consequential and quite damaging across our hemisphere. And, you know, we, I, I hope that we will see in the coming months increased focus outside of our borders, because right now we're so focused on, you know, dealing with a pandemic at home, dealing with the economic recovery, as well as a whole host of obviously uh, challenges when it comes to social, racial, uh, other issues of injustice. But let's not forget there's a whole world out there with other threats that we also have to deal with. Brett Bruin, president of the international consultancy firm, the Global Situation Room. Coming up after this short break, if you're struggling with the idea of going back to work, so is your pet. Many people have been working exclusively from home over the past year, and that has been great for your dog and maybe your cat if you have a nice cat. Pets certainly enjoy the company of their people, again, unless you have a jerk cat. Someone who doesn't like cats wrote this. Yeah. Uh, now many people are returning to work or finding jobs again, so your pets, they're going to be home alone. That can lead to anxiety in them. Sherry Williams, dog trainer, behaviorist, working here in Los Angeles. So Sherry, what do people have to look out for? Well, there's two reasons for separation anxiety. It's one, what people need to do is get, either give their dog something to do when they leave. It depends on the breed. It depends on the dominance of the dog. Dogs have separate, highly dominant dogs have separation anxiety because uh, the instinct of the dog thinks they're in charge, not you. So they didn't say you could leave. So they go out of their regular mind into a very anxious state of mind. So what, another thing, um, so what I always tell people to do is give them something like some high value 
food, like a chewy, like an esophagus stick, a bully stick, a, um, a, a, an, an organ stick that you can get at um, your your mom and pop food store. So you're, you're, store. you don't like giving them like a puzzle to do. So you can do the puzzle. Sometimes it makes them neurotic because <laughs> they can't get the object. It's unnatural. So I'm a behaviorist. So dogs don't do puzzles in the, you know, uh, it's just not natural. Um, some dogs, it makes them more anxious. So it depends. There's so many different levels of separation anxiety. Another thing that people can do is they can have a dog walker come in and, you know, get take the dog out, wear the dog out. The people before they leave for work, if it's a, if they can ride their bike and run the dog and wear it out, so when they leave, it'll just be exhausted. Or <laughs> so if they're sleeps, runners, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if they're runners, you know, they can run with the dog. The exercise is going to wear it out for that moment before they leave. Um, exercise only, the mental is what wears the dog out. Whenever I work with clients, their dogs are wiped out for the day after I'm done. So because they're mentally worn out. That's what exhausts a dog. But it's hard when you're going back to work and you're stressed out and you've got to get out the door. So it, I would take those extra moments to, um, you know, take an extra hour to get the dog exhausted physically. At least, you know, you can leave with and then give it a high value chew, something for it to have um, that is more interested in in that than you leaving the house. What about like easing them into it? You know, we can, I can leave for a little while and then I'll come back and then I'll leave for a little longer and then I'll come back. And then eventually it's a whole work day, right? Right. So you're reasoning it out and, and it's against the instinct of a dog to reason out. It's dogs are instinctual animals. They're not people. We reason dogs don't. So dogs don't have concept of time. It doesn't matter if you leave for a minute or you leave for an hour. They don't have a concept of time. It's the fact that you're no longer present. And unless they have structure and rules before you leave, it's a hard, it's a hard sell uh, to leave a dog without, with an, without an option of something to do. So that's why I always tell people who don't have the time to fix separation anxiety before they go back to work is to um, give it something that it loves to have more than it loves you being there. So, that's why I always say get get some super high value for the dog, yeah. and that that will usually distract it enough for you to leave and not feel guilty. We we were talking this morning about how some people who bought pets, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, yep. are now giving them away because they're going back to work or they're about to go back to work, and they don't know what to do with their pets, so they're giving them to to shelters. That that has got to be. I mean, it would be traumatic for a human. Oh. It's got to be for an animal. It's 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 probably the absolute worst thing you can do because dog animals don't understand um, when they don't understand when we leave them. They don't understand that we're gone now because they cannot reason. It's impossible for them to reason. All they know is that what they knew is gone, but they don't know why it's gone. The worst thing a person can do is to dump an animal. Because that creates also anxiety in the in the dog, and that's the second reason for separation anxiety when a dog is dumped. So it's either the dog is a dominant dog and it didn't say you could leave, or it's been traumatized by being dumped and thrown in a pound. And then whoever adopts the dog again um, will have to deal with that issue. And and you know that's just it's super cruel. It's it's one of my hugest pet peeves that people who 
who do this because they just don't want to take the responsibility on when you get a dog. It is a, it's your part-time job. You have to put the time in to make sure the dog has an, an extraordinary life, not a, not a just, okay, sit in the yard life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, that that's what people do wrong. They get it because they were lonely during the pandemic. Okay, great. So you're lonely and now you're not. So now the dog suffers. That to me is so selfish. Sherry Williams, dog trainer, behaviorist, working here in L.A. Sherry, thanks. Broadway shows are about to start up again for the first time in more than a year. The same musicals will tour across the country. Theaters will get the crowds back. Maybe they can't be packed everywhere, but uh, seats are going to have people in them. Ira Mont is a veteran Broadway stage manager, has worked on productions like The Producers, Cats, Jesus Christ Superstar. So, Ira, has this year been tough? Uh, what has it been like for you and the others who work on Broadway? And then what do you think the next few months look like? Well, of course, it's been a very, very difficult year for all of us in the entertainment industry, uh, particularly the live entertainment industry. And on Broadway, uh, we were the first to fully shut down and we're going to be uh, one of the last ones to return. Um, f- folks have had different experiences. Of course, there were uh, health issues for uh, everybody and people were losing their health insurance, like so many others in the country. Um, and there just wasn't any work to be done. Uh, so folks have been managing as they as they could. Um, and the idea that we're coming back this fall, which is what we've been hoping for for quite a while, and now to hear it and see it coming to fruition is, is very heartening. Uh, so we're all looking forward to getting back to work. Uh, we're going to get back to work, but it, it won't necessarily be back to the, the old normal. Hopefully it'll be a new normal for uh, changes in both uh, safety protocols for health, for for COVID, but also uh, changes in how things are done uh, towards uh, racial and social justice in the theater industry and on Broadway. Does September still seem pretty far away or is there, I mean, these things, as you know, you need some lead time to get it ready. And I guess you got lead time to get it ready. Yeah, yes, we do. It does seem far away. It's good that we have a little bit of time. Uh, I don't think anybody expected everything to just snap back on. As you said in your introduction, uh, Broadway shows will will phase through the course of the months of, of the fall, beginning in uh, late August and into uh, September. But all 30 plus shows on Broadway uh, and the national tours that will be going out as well aren't all going to start on the same day. It'll take a few months to get everybody back up and running. But it is good to have some time to plan and schedule rehearsal time and book rehearsal studios and for all of our fantastic performers to begin getting ready and back into shape. It takes quite a lot of stamina to do eight shows a week. And I'm sure everybody's been taking good care of themselves, but not doing it for so long, it, uh, it's going to require some some rebuilding those muscles. You know, you mentioned the touring shows, and of course, lots of people, uh, you know, unfortunately don't make it to Broadway, but they see Broadway shows in their hometowns. And here in L.A., we've got like the Pantages, which, uh, uh, you know, has been shut, of course, just like Broadway theaters have been, but normally would be playing a lot of these uh, big hit shows from Broadway. As far as you know, does this mean that all of those places will be by the September kind of ramping up? I I don't know for sure, so I don't want to misspeak, but I would say yes, by September they'll be ramping up. I'm sure a lot of 
the uh, the touring houses around the country, including the Pantages, uh, tentatively announced some seasons, and maybe now they're really locking those in and beginning to sell tickets. Uh, so depending on the locale, uh, I don't know that there'll actually be a show playing in every town this September or early October, but those, those tours are going to start making their way around to all the municipalities again. So there'll be a, a Broadway show coming to, to, to your hometown soon. What are the rules you guys going to have to abide by? Well, uh, that's uh, uh, been a long conversation, which, of course, has been changing as the science has changed. You know, the the vaccine, the vaccine situation was the game changer everybody was hoping for. But um, all of the unions, including my union, Actors Equity Association, uh, which I'm the national third vice president of the stage manager, vice president. uh, We've all been in conversations with the employers, with the producers, the Broadway League, about the safety protocols that are going to be required. Uh, to get everybody back to work safely. The vaccine makes it a lot easier than what we were contemplating many months ago. But there are still uh, concerns in terms of HVAC uh, air ventilation and proper PPE and what the uh, what the theaters are going to do in terms of the patrons, because we're all in the same room, essentially, even though we're on stage or backstage and the audience is in an auditorium, we're all in one big chamber together. So uh, we're concerned about how they're being handled as well. And, um, you know, cleaning, cleaning stipulations, that, that kind of thing. What have you been doing for the past year? Well, uh, me personally, uh, my wife and I have been home in Brooklyn, New York. My wife is also a Broadway stage manager. She does mostly plays. Her show actually closed just as the shutdown happened. Uh, she was doing a play called The Inheritance. Uh, I'm currently doing a musical called Jagged Little Pill, which I'm happy to say will be coming back. Um, my wife and I like to say we've been practicing for retirement and it's been going very well. Uh, we enjoy each other's company. And, uh, and so that's been good. It'll be nice to actually be able to go to restaurants and see shows and travel, of course. Uh, so we've been home and walking and cooking and uh, watching television and seeing friends in socially distanced manner in a socially distanced manner. I've been fortunate enough to have a tiny bit of work over the course of the, the shutdown. I did a, a development session, a dance development session for another show that I'm not attached to, but they needed somebody. And that was wonderful to do. And also uh, fortunate enough to be with my show, Jagged Little Pill, when we appeared on the uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, as well as uh, a a network television special uh, back in December about uh, Broadway. We also did a live stream concert, which I worked on. So it's only been a couple of weeks of work, but it was uh, was fun. I've been in a lot of meetings, uh, union meetings and (laughs) Uh, benefit fund meetings. I'm a trustee on our health and pension fund. So there have been a lot of issues with that. And uh, yeah, that's been keeping me busy. Well, we're all looking forward to it. You are too. And uh, here's hoping for uh, for August and September. Ira Montz, veteran Broadway stage managers, worked on a bunch of productions, producers, cats, Cinderella, Jagged Little Pill. Ira, thanks. Some states opened up and eased COVID restrictions earlier than others. The idea was to get the economy back on track. So did it work? Well, a study by Moody's Analytics found the states that opened earlier saw a boost in economic activity, but those gains were limited or short-lived, as other states often caught up within a month. The states that opened early or or earlier saw a longer-lasting advantage in employment, but even in that critical category, the other states have narrowed the gap. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 